This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, without further ado, let me introduce our presenters today. The first is Annabelle. She got her PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in analytical chemistry. And joining her today is Allison Yurita, who got her PhD from UCLA in chemical and biomolecular engineering. And they both work together in the Center for Micro and Nanotechnology and Bioengineering Center at Lawrence Livermore Lab. And joining them today from Tracy High School is Erin McKay, who's a biology teacher there and received her undergraduate degree from UC Davis. So without further ado, let's get started. Thank you, Joanna, for that wonderful introduction. So um, as Joanna pointed out, we're going to be talking to you today about building devices to go into the brain or talk and listen to your brain. Um, you might be wondering, what field is that, right? You don't necessarily have like a brain class in school, right? You have biology, you have maybe an engineering or an architecture class if you're in college. Um, and this particular field is called bioengineering. And bioengineering is kind of exactly what it sounds like, building um, tools to let us better understand and test biological phenomena. Um, who works in bioengineering? Just about any type of scientist or researcher you could think of, uh, engineers of every sort. We have physicists, biologists, computational scientists, and then in my case, a chemist. So I um, went to Texas, or I'm from Texas. I went to high school in Central Texas where um, I really liked science. I thought maybe I want to be a doctor because a lot of times, right, when you're taking science classes, you learn, you know, doctors science. Um, and so I went to college kind of undecided. I didn't know what I wanted to be. But then I got a scholarship to become a chemist or to do a major in chemistry. So I became a chemist because it made sense to me. And it was a good choice. I have liked it ever since. I continued on in the path of chemistry and have kind of gotten back into the medical side of things by doing bioengineering. And as for me, my background is in chemical engineering um, so actually, when I was in high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So when I was applying to colleges, I actually applied everywhere undeclared. I just, I didn't know. So, you know, my very first year of college, I actually had a friend kind of take me into one of the Introduction to Engineering classes, and I decided to sit in because, you know, why not? And what I actually learned is that I really enjoyed the problem-solving aspect of engineering. So what I did was I, you know, I kind of knew I liked chemistry, um, I wanted to combine that with engineering, which is chemical engineering. Um, so I decided to do, the, do that for both of my degrees. So. Thanks, Allison. So that was kind of bioengineering in general. But this group that I'm showing you the picture of is the folks at Lawrence Livermore National Lab that work in the bioengineering group there. And so that group, or bioengineering at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, has kind of three main sections. One is the in vivo systems. So these are devices and things that we build to go into the body. That's what we're going to be talking about today. But the group also does work in what we call ex vivo systems. So that's either building um, or taking cells from the body and growing them and putting them on devices, studying them outside of the body so that we can better understand how they work in the body. And then there's in silico systems, which are computational models that help us understand either large amounts of data from um, humans or animals 
or help us to model how different organs or different systems might work computationally. Um, and if you come to the next three talks in the Science on Saturday, I think you'll get to see some of the ex vivo and in vivo systems examples as well. Um, so again, we're talking about the brain today, but the brain is part of the nervous system. The nervous system consists of two different parts. There's the central nervous system, so again, your brain and spinal cord, but there's also the peripheral nervous system. So these are nerves running throughout your body, and what they do is rapidly transmit signals back to your spinal cord and your brain, so back to the central nervous system. This is that same system that lets you touch a really hot item like a stove and rapidly pull your hand back, right? Instead of waiting until the, the signal burns your hand too quickly, you can rapidly pull it back, thanks to this system. Um, if we go back to the brain, um, again, your brain is a giant, well, not really that giant, but it's a few pounds of an organ, right? It's a big mass, but it's not just a solid. It's actually made up of a lot of individual cells, and these cells are called brain cells, um, and they're very small. So if you actually zoom in on a single brain cell, that what you're seeing on your left is the cell body. So that cell body is about 10 microns large. Um, to give you an idea about what 10 microns is, one of your hairs, if you go ahead and grab it right now, um, feel it's pretty small, right? That's about 100 microns. So 10 of these cell bodies back to back is the width of your hair. And then that cell body um, has a lot of what we call these dendrites coming out of it. These dendrites kind of reach out to anthropomorphize this cell um, to listen for other signals from other cells. Um, there's also this axon. So the axon is this long extended body that then reaches out to these axon terminals, which the cell uses to talk to others. Um, are you guys familiar with the tin can phone? Yeah. So again, this same idea, a person talks into one side of the tin can phone, the string transmits that message to the other tin can phone, where the person waiting for the message can then hear it. This is exactly how the axon works in the um, cell, that same sort of way to transmit messages. So again, a cell has something it wants to say. It uses electricity to transmit that signal down its axon, where it is then heard by a neighboring cell that can then continue to pass on this message. Um, so what we're building are interfaces to kind of listen in or add additional electrical signals to what's going on in the brain. Um, this idea of neural interfaces or of brain-machine interfaces isn't probably new. Um, thanks to Hollywood, thanks to science fiction, the idea and what these interfaces could do their, po their possibilities are something that's, you know, I bet you guys have better ideas than I do, actually, if we were to make this an open forum about what you could actually do by interfacing directly to cells. But we're not quite where Hollywood has us right now in terms of what we can do with these devices. So one of the things we can do, though, what I'm showing you behind, behind me is what's called a cochlear implant. So this is one of the state-of-the-art neural implants that exists right now. So what you're seeing is... Around this woman's ear, there is a bunch of electronics with a microphone. So the same way I'm mic'd right now, that microphone picks up what's being said in a room, transmits, transmits it with the electronics, but instead of my little microphone pack, it's those little electronics behind her ear. And then here, instead of going to the speaker so you guys can all hear me, that microphone sends information through that transmitter. So the transmitter is that gray circle you're seeing kind of further back on her head. It's transmitting that signal to another piece of instrumentation that's actually inside the head. And that's the really cool part that you can't see. But what it's doing is directly interfacing to the auditory nerve. And it sends electrical impulses 
to the auditory nerve that basically your nerve learns to use as sound. So this is a way that people can artificially hear thanks to this microphone and device. So that's the classic idea of a brain-machine interface. This machine, the microphone, is interfaced to your brain through the nerves so that you can get additional information that, for example, a deaf person could not get otherwise. Here's another state-of-the-art neural interface. So this particular device, what you're looking at is um, towards the left of the screen is where the person's eyes would be. The, the um, two little wires you see going down are electrodes that are used to stimulate the brain in a process called deep brain stimulation. So here what's happening, or um, a lot of times what this therapy is used for is people that have tremors. So um, you might know someone or have seen someone who has Parkinson's disease. A lot of times they have a hand tremor. Um, what's happening there, right, is I showed you those electrical signals coming down axons. Imagine if that was happening all the time and you couldn't turn it off. So your hand, you want to hold your hand still, right? If you put your hand out right now, we can all do that. You're telling the, yourself to hold your hand still. Um, what this machine or what this device will do is go in and send a signal so that a person whose hand is trim trembling because they can't send that signal to tell their hand to turn off, it will do that for them. So again, um, that's kind of what this state of the art is. But if you can see, it's kind of hard to see, but at the very tip of those devices, there's four slightly brighter spots. Those are the electrodes that are actually interfacing to the brain. But they're pretty large, right? So you can imagine the size of them compared to these neurons that are so much smaller than your hair. So this is the first neural implant that Livermore made. And I want you guys to look at it for a second and try and think about what you think it might do based on some of the other things I told you about. And I'm going to bring Allison back out, and she's going to explain what it does. All right, so now that you've had a good look at what this device is, I'm going to tell you that it actually interfaces with the eye. So we call this an artificial retina. So again, we have the picture on the left, that's what you just saw in the previous slide, and the cartoon on the right is how it actually interfaces with the eye. So that big black dot on the left side of the picture is the electronics package, and that connects to the electrode array, which in the picture, it's a little hard to see, but there's a little glare on the right side of the picture. That's a bunch of little tiny electrodes that are designed to interface with the back of the eye, and specifically the optic nerve. So the reason why you might want to use an artificial retina is that there are certain people that have an affliction where there are cells in the back of their eye that have died, so they've lost their sight. So what this artificial retina does is it bypasses those dead cells. So say a person with this implant wants to read this eye chart. For example, the E at the very top. They're actually wearing a pair of sunglasses that have a camera attached to it. And this camera, when they look at this eye chart, it'll capture the image of the E, it'll transmit that to the electronics package, and then it'll light up the electrode array in the shape of an E, which you can see in this cartoon. So then that E, it's lit up. It's going to actually tell the optic nerve, oh, I'm looking at an E. It'll transmit that information to the brain. And now this person is actually able to say, oh, I'm looking at this E. So there are a few limitations with this technology. So for example, you can see in this electrode array, it's a little bit more pixelated than the actual image, right? So maybe if they want to read the very bottom of the eye chart, that would be a little bit more difficult. But since they were not able to see anything at all, this still shows a significant improvement in their quality of life simply because they're now able to read. All right, so that's a really small interface, right? So it has to go in the back of the eye. If we're making devices that go into the brain, this also has to be very small. So this picture I'm showing here shows some of these neural interfaces lying on a single fingertip. 
So you might be wondering, how are we able to make these devices at such small scales? And the answer is using a technique called microfabrication. So I'm going to walk you through the steps, but first I want to say it's similar to like building a cake. So we're going to go layer by layer. We're going to pattern each of those layers into whatever shape we want and move on to the next layer. So the way this starts is we have a silicon wafer substrate. You can kind of think of that as like the pan on your cake. So we're going to first deposit the layer that we want to pattern. So it's going to be either polymer or metal. On top of that, we can put down a special chemical called photoresist. So what's unique about photoresist is that it's actually sensitive to light. What that means is that we can actually use a mask to pattern it. So here we have an example of a mask. So this mask is made of glass. So you can see it's transparent in some areas, but then dark in certain other areas, like, for example, in the middle of the mask. So if we shine UV light through the mask, what happens is that the light will travel through wherever the glass is transparent, react with the photoresist underneath, but wherever it's dark, it's going to just bounce off and not react with the photoresist underneath those particular areas. We can then develop this photoresist, so similar to how you might develop an old picture, and now we're left with the photoresist in the exact shape that we want. This photoresist acts as a protective layer, so what this means is that we can now etch the underlying layer using either chemicals or photoresist, but wherever there's photoresist, you know, we still are protected right underneath of that. So finally, we can remove our photoresist mask, and we're left with our layer in the exact shape that we want. All right, so now I'm going to show you a video um, demonstrating how we use this microfabrication to make our neural interfaces. So, First, we start off with that silicon substrate. We're going to deposit a layer of polymer. On top of that, we're going to deposit and pattern the electrodes so it's all made of metal. On top of that, another layer of polymer. We're then going to pattern the polymer, so we're going to expose each individual electrode, as well as define the entire outline and shape of the device. So each of those electrodes are attached to a tiny wire that lead all the way up to the top of the device, which is where we attach the electronics that allow us to talk to it. So because this device is made of polymer, it's actually really flexible. So in order to get it into the brain, we have to attach a temporary surgical tool. And so during surgery, a surgeon will go ahead and implant the device. He'll remove that surgical tool. And now our device is ready to record from the brain. So all of this work is done in this very special area called a clean room. So these are pictures of our actual clean room at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. The picture on the left shows one of my colleagues inspecting one of our neural devices. The picture on the right shows where we do some of that microfabrication patterning work that I just walked you through. So one thing you might notice about both of these pictures is that everybody there is wearing a very special jumpsuit. You can really only see their eyes, right? And so the reason behind that is, well, we're working in a clean room. And you might be wondering, well, how do we make that clean? The first step is to prevent any contaminants from entering the clean room. And actually, the biggest source of contaminants is yourself. So you can imagine you know, all the dust on your clothes, your hair, even your skin cells. If any of that were to accidentally fall off and get onto the devices that you're making, because what we're making is so tiny, that could potentially ruin the device. So instead, we now have to dress in these bunny suits so that we're basically protecting the devices from ourselves. The second thing that must be done for a clean room is that you have to highly filter the air to remove all of the dust. So to emphasize exactly how clean a clean room is, I'd like to invite Erin up onto the stage for a demonstration. Thank you very much. So how clean is a clean room? We can see some numbers on the back. 
So we see that class 100 clean room has 100 particles per cubic foot of air. Really? Cubic feet? Really? Really? This is science and engineering. We should be working in metric. <laughs> now, we can all imagine a cubic square foot of air. We can imagine 100 particles. That's not that hard. We see that, um, on the other hand, the air in this auditorium has a million particles per cubic foot of air. So what does that mean? It's really hard for us to imagine 100 particles. And these are particles that are 0.5 micrometers. So, you know, stick 200 of them together. Again, you get the width of a hair. So we think they're, like, ridiculously tiny, but they're big enough to cause problems. So I've got some students in some bunny suits to help us understand. So we're going to start off with Sierra coming out with the auditorium air. So we have marshmallows to represent these particles. Now, the tiny, itty-bitty mini marshmallows, those are those 0.5 micrometer marshmallows. Like the big, giant, giant ones, those are like your skin cells, like, flaking off of you. Uh, but she's thoroughly covered. Now, why don't you give it a little bit of a shake? Yeah, there's just so much in there. Um, and so if we take a look there, it's just pretty darn dirty, and it would really mess everything up. So how clean is a clean room in comparison? We have 10,000 marshmallows in there. We couldn't fit a million. So come on out, Misha. Oh, oh, it looks like it's perfectly clean. Misha, is there anything in there right now? Is that really clean room air? What does it need? <gasps> One marshmallow. There we go. That is a class 100 clean room right there. So thank you very much, girls. All right, so now that I've walked you through how we use a clean room to microfabricate these devices, I wanted to show you an actual device that we've made. So this is a device designed to interface with a rat brain. And you might be wondering, well, why a rat? I've been talking about humans this entire time. Well, the reason is all of this technology that we design is brand new. It's never been tested before. So you might imagine, you know, the very first time I make one of these, you wouldn't want me to go ahead and implant it into your grandma's brain or your brother and sister's brain, right? So instead, what we do is use model organisms to see how we can characterize and study how our devices perform we can also learn about how the rat brain performs. We can use this information then to better understand and hopefully translate this to human use in the future. So on the picture on the left shows this device for the rat brain. That Y-shaped connector at the top is where we clamp on and connect to the electronics. The entire device is about six centimeters long, so think of that as the length of one of your fingers, for example. At the very bottom, you see a blue box and so out of, in that blue box, there's four different um, spikes coming out of that. And that's actually the part that interfaces with the rat brain. So if we zoom in, you can see that there's that picture on the right. Each of those shanks is actually about 100 micrometers wide at the widest point. So again, Anna talked about the width of your hair. So one of those shanks is actually the width of just one of your hairs. So these are all really, really tiny. Each, you can see in this device here, there's a bunch of black spots. So each of those black dots is actually an individual electrode designed to pick up the neural uh, interface and signaling from a rat brain. So next, I'm going to play for you a sound. And I want you to think about what you might be listening to as I play it for you.
All right, so now that you've had time to really think about it, what you were actually listening to was a rat's brain. So this is a video, but first I'm going to walk you through what you're looking at so when I play it for you, you can better understand what's going on. So this is a graph on the left. The y-axis is where we assign each individual electrode a number from 1 to 45, and the x-axis, we're measuring the time. So the way you can think about this is with each row, every time one of those electrodes picks up a spike from a nearby neuron, it's going to make a little different color hash mark. The picture on the right is actually the rat moving through a maze. So this is a bird's eye view. We put a little bit of a cartoon of this rat so you can kind of see where he is because it's a little bit hard to see in the actual image. But he's pointing up and his tail is pointing down. You can maybe see his tail. Where that green circle is is where his head is and where the implant is. And what I want you to look at when I play the video is that as he moves through the maze, there's going to be a bunch of little tiny colored dots that follow his path. And as those dots change color, what that actually means is that this device is picking up different areas of the brain that are firing, which means that you can actually see his brain work as he figures out where he wants to get his next treat. So now I'm going to play the video, now combined with the sound, and you can see how this all works. So he's turning around. You can see those dots are changing color. And now he's found his treat. All right, so now that I showed you a device that we're able to make that interfaces with the rat brain, I also want to emphasize that we're actually able to make shape designs of many different shapes and sizes depending on the need. So for example, if we want to interface with the central nervous system, not only can we make these devices that go into the brain, so in this cartoon it's that little curly cue device that you see on the left, we can also make devices that go on the surface of the brain, which are those yellow pads. What's nice is that because our devices are made of polymer, they're nice and flexible, so they can go into the folds of the brain, and you can get a really nice contact and interface with those neurons. On the other hand, if we want to study the peripheral nervous system, so say we want to look at this particular nerve in this guy's arm, what we can now do is do two separate things. On the left, we have a device that's going into the nerve bundle, so we can study what's happening between those nerves. Um, if we want to see how the nerve performs as a whole, we can actually wrap the device around the entire bundle. So I've shown you a bunch of interesting technology in terms of how we make these devices, how we can make these electrical recordings. So you might be wondering, well, what's next? Where do we go from here? And for that, I'm going to bring Anna up onto the stage to talk about some cool new technology we're working on. Thank you. So Allison talked to you about how to make a neural interface, and she talked to you about how we can listen to electrical signals from these neural interfaces, right? But what's next? Well, your brain is a lot more than just electrical signals, right? There's not just brain cells even in there. There's all types of other cells. There's all sorts of other things going on. So if you're only listening to the electrical signals, you're missing out on a lot of the other things going on. Again, your brain does, in fact, still communicate with electrical signals, though, but it also communicates with chemical signals. Um, in the same way, again, that cell body will have something it wants to say. It transmits it electrically through the axon, but then what happens and what that next cell actually hears is that what's the chemical release, and that those chemicals are called neurotransmitters. So it's those neurotransmitters that actually go from one cell to the next to transmit the message. 
If we zoom in on where this transmission actually happens, it's at a place called a synapse. So this synapse is where the two cells nearly touch, and it's about 100 nanometers in size. So again, going back to your hair, 100 microns, 100 nanometers, 1,000 times smaller. So this is a very, very small area where this transfer is happening. But we're still going to try and hear what's going on. So again, if we zoom in and we look at these neurotransmitters, um, they're pink dots. We can make them even bigger because, you know, why not? We're zooming in even more. But they're, they're not really pink dots, right? These neurotransmitters are chemicals. They're molecules. Um, and often it's not just molecules. It's a bunch of different types of chemicals or molecules, neurotransmitters being released at the same time. And so I could represent them with their chemical formulas. I could represent them with different colors. But because it's Saturday and it's been raining and you guys still came out anyways, we're going to use Lucky Charms. <laughs> but just remember, each of these ties back to a specific neurotransmitter. How do we listen to these? So what we do is the same way we kind of interface for electrical signals to listen, we build sensors that can do that same thing chemically. And what you have is our chemical sensor surface that is specifically designed to interact with, in this case, one lucky charm, the fish. Um, so when that lucky charm that can interact with the surface, when the fish comes in contact with that surface, it creates a change. The changes here are represented by those green arrows. Those changes are then transduced into an electrical signal that we can nicely read out on a computer. And again, the transduction is more just like a translation. Imagine it's taking some physical chemical change and translating it into an electrical signal. This whole idea isn't something new. If anyone knows somebody with diabetes, they probably check their blood glucose pretty, pretty regularly. Um, they either take, right, cut their finger, take a bit of blood, put it on a sensing strip, um, and then it's read by a machine. Or maybe they have a constant implant that gives them real-time feedback. So it's that same sort of technology, but um, here we are making it much, much smaller and trying to make it last longer and give continuous readouts instead of just something that you stick into a machine and get one recording. So, Allison showed you that device that goes into a rat, right, for electrical recording. This is um, a very similar device, but for electrical and chemical recording. So at the very top, again, we have the human hair, just as a reminder. And then on the left of this device, there's two kind of white connectors, and those are where you plug in to actually get this information out of a device. So that's the part that kind of we connect to to get this information out. On the, the right, that part that's circled is actually the part of the device that goes into the brain that has the electrodes on it. So zooming in on that very tip, what you can see are there are still these small purplish-blue electrodes. Those are the sensors to look at um, electrical signals, right? And then those larger circles, 50 microns in diameter, they're made of platinum, and what we're going to do is actually build them to be chemical sensors for glutamate. So why do we want to see glutamate? Glutamate is, there's 10 grams of it in your body. That's a lot of your, well, it's not that much, but it's a significant portion of your body made up of glutamate. Um, glutamate, again, it's kind of ubiquitous. Monosodium glutamate, food seasoning. Um, this comes up a lot. It doesn't pass your, through your stomach to your brain, though, so don't worry if you have a really salty or monosodium glutamate-filled meal. It's not going to change your brain chemistry, as you see the next slides. Um, but there is a ton of your body's glutamate that's actually in your brain. Um, and it's doing a lot of important things there. Um, when the amounts and levels and regulation of glutamate are correct in your brain, you get learning, memory, and movement that are the way you want them to be. So a lot of the things you take for granted about the ways you go about your everyday life are because your glutamate, 
is in like an average to optimal level. If you don't have enough glutamate for some reason, you can get all sorts of different problems. Anything from brain development, which, you know, nobody wants that. Um, different issues with communication, memory, insomnia can all be associated with low glutamate. But if you have too much glutamate, you can also have a lot of problems come up, like ALS, learning, disease, learning disabilities, Alzheimer's disease, autism. And even if there's too high of levels, you can actually start to have brain cells die off. So in building this sensor, what I'm going to be showing you is at the very top, a reminder of what the device looks like. Um, in the center, what that is is going to be a cross-section on just one of the silver circles you're seeing at the top. So one electrode turned sideways. So we're going to look at a cross-section about what we build on top of this device. And then on the bottom, what you're seeing is how we um, kind of read out or what we read in and out of this sensor. So again, we apply a voltage bias to this electrode. And that's kind of, again, the same kind of bias as you might think about in magnets, only here we're attracting electrons. Um, and so what you can do is you apply this bias, and any molecules in the area or any of these neurotransmitters that can donate electrons back and forth at this surface will then create current changes, which is what you're seeing, that little hump that happens as um, you know, a binding event occurs. So our goal in the next few slides is going to be to try and detect the Lucky Charms hat here. What we're going to do first is just see what happens. Worst case scenario right here is how this works basically, where we don't get any kind of signal for the Lucky Charms hat, but a lot of other molecules or other Lucky Charms in the brain will in fact create signals or dirty up this surface. Um, if you think about, um, if you've ever seen a medical device or if you've ever seen anything go even into like mud, right? That's probably relevant for today. If you go outside, you step in the mud, it stays on your shoe. A lot of the molecules and things in the brain are also dirty. And so if not, they'll just cover the surface and we won't be able to sense our glutamate. So what we do is we add the selective filter over the top. So um, again, think about this like a sponge with different size holes that won't let um, a lot of different lucky charms in. But this particular filter that we design will in fact let the Lucky Charms fish through because it's small, because it swims, whatever you want to use as your analogy. The Lucky Charms fish can in fact move through the selective membrane. We then add another layer and in it submit suspended enzyme. This enzyme can actually specifically interact or react with our Lucky Charms hat, digest it, and create the product of this fish. So then the fish can swim through to the surface to create the signal. And so with this, what you can do is indirectly detect, in this case, the Lucky Charms hat with um, a reaction that happens specifically when it's in, in the region. So we use this indirect detection um, for a lot of different molecules in vivo because you can imagine you change out that enzyme and you can start to look at different molecules. So I just told you how this worked, but um, you guys probably all know in science, you can't just say something works. You have to do a science lab. You have to do an experiment. You have to prove it. So what I'm going to do is show you how we test these, how we show that they're actually working. Um, very middle of the screen, again, you're seeing that tip of the device. What we do is we've turned it into a cartoon, which is what you're seeing on the far right. The tip of the device with the electrodes is put into a beaker, just a standard beaker. There's nothing special about it. These are the ones you've probably used in your own chemistry or science labs. And then what we do is we add injections of the neurotransmitters we want to look for. So again, if we're testing this to see if it'll get respond to glutamate, we'll do injections of glutamate and we'll look for changes on the signal. But then we'll also do injections of other things to make sure we're only seeing signals for glutamate. So I'm going to leave 
this cross-section on the left, just to remind you guys kind of what's going on. But right now, this is just the device sitting in buffer solution. No other chemicals, and you see no signal. You just see that flat green line, which is what you expect. Then we do an injection of glutamate, and you see that rapid um, increase in the current. That's what we want. It shows that we're seeing a change in the current in response to glutamate. We can continue to do injections, and with each injection, you see an increase in that um, current, which is again what we're trying to see. But we also want to make sure that we're not detecting the other lucky charms, or in this case, one of these lucky charms is going to be ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. It's everywhere in your brain. It's very important, but we don't want this sensor to detect it. And when we do the injection you're seeing on the right, we don't see a change in the signal. So this is what we're hoping for, and this is a sign that the sensor is selective. We also want to make sure we can't see the heart, which in this case is dopamine. Again, dopamine, you guys have probably heard of it, another really important neurotransmitter, but not what we want the sensor to see. And again, we do an injection, and you don't see an increase in glutamate, or you don't see an increase, which is good. So this sensor is showing us responses to glutamate when we want to see them, but not to other neurotransmitters that might also be in the region. So then what we can do is take that um, glutamate increases that we saw for known concentrations that you're seeing on the left, and we can actually turn it into a standard calibration curve, which is what you're seeing on the right. So what we've done is take the concentrations of glutamate, which we know because we did the injections of those amounts, and put that on the x-axis, and then the y-axis is the currents, or those corresponding steps up on the left axis, or the left graph, sorry. Um, and what this plot then can do is let us know once we take this device and we implant it in the brain and we see these current changes, how much glutamate is actually associated with the current changes that we're seeing in the body. So back to this device. Um, as a reminder we're gonna, of what it looks like, we're going to just take this very tip of the device and we're going to actually take it and implant it deep into the brain of, again, a rodent. Um, once it's implanted, because this animal will then move around through, um, through a maze and things like that, what we'll actually do is use dental cement to affix the rest of the device to the animal's head. So that's what it looks like in a cross-section on the left, and that's what it looks like on the animal's head on the right. Once this is implanted, um, a few days later, the animal's moving around super happy, and we start to teach him um, different behaviors. So what you're seeing in the pink signal is the glutamate sensor. And what you're seeing on the bottom signal is kind of a control or a test sensor. The goal there is that that line stays flat. <laughs> if you see any changes on that sensor, it would be an indication that something has failed. Or if those two lines were to match, it would tell you that your glutamate sensor wasn't working anymore. Fortunately here, what you see is that control sensor is completely flat, and the lovely pink line is showing all kinds of activity. So what we see is a little bit after two minutes of this animal being in a cage, um, he's given a sugar pellet. That's what the lucky charm here is representing, is him getting that treat. Um, and then what you see is this steep spike up and a lot of activity. So this is the animal. Um, the same way you guys probably think it's rewarding. Again, you've probably answered a question in class for a piece of candy. It's the same kind of thing. It's exciting. It's rewarding. The animal likes getting it, and he's learning that it's good. So you see these increases happen. So then 10 days after implantation, this is what the signals look like. He's still getting that lucky charm treat at the same time, but you're not seeing anything on that pink line at all, right, indicating that anything happened. It looks exactly the same as the, the bottom line, which is what I told you you did not want. So what this is telling me is 10 days after we've done this surgery, 
you can no longer get good signals from the glutamate sensor. Um, this might not be a huge deal. Um, going back again to glucose sensors that diabetics use, usually those are one-time tests, right? Somebody takes a blood droplet, puts it on a strip, does a test, throws it away. Sometimes they have um, an implantable device that they'll keep for maybe a week, take it off, put a new one on. This is kind of something that happens to a lot of these devices. And a lot of times they're just made disposable to get around it. But again, we put something through brain surgery. You don't want to be doing that every week or two weeks. So Allison's going to come back out and tell you some of the things that we're doing to make these chemical sensors last much, much more than just two weeks so that it's worth going through brain surgery to get one. So as Anna just mentioned, the lifetime of our chemical sensors is only about 10 days after we implant it. So as engineers, we wanted to take a step back and start examining the different steps to see if we can start forming hypotheses as to why this enzyme layer isn't lasting so long. So one of the first steps we looked at was actually the enzyme coding method. So what Anna didn't tell you about this method is that we actually do it by hand. So this is a picture of what it looks like. This is a picture taken under a microscope. So we have to use a microscope for this particular step. You can see we have our device right here. And that black line out of the corner is actually a special paintbrush that we buy. So this paintbrush is actually a single camel eyelash that's attached to a paintbrush handle. So what we do is we have to dip the paintbrush in this enzyme solution and then holding it under a microscope, you have to very carefully paint only one of those large electrodes without getting it anywhere else. So you can imagine, I'm doing this by hand. If I have to do 10 devices in a row, I might be really tired by the end. You know, I'm tired of looking at it under a microscope. My hand is tired. I'm going to start introducing some variability from device to device. I might not paint it the entire way. There might be holes in my enzyme layer. There might be cracks. So we were starting to look at, well, maybe this is one of the reasons why the enzyme layer isn't lasting so long. So I can tell you that this is hard. But to really demonstrate exactly how hard it is, I'm going to bring Aaron back up on stage for a fun demo. Thank you very much. So we were trying to think, how can we help you really appreciate how hard it is to hand paint these electrodes? And we're brainstorming and brainstorming, and we're like, oh, we could bring a microscope on stage. Oh, wait, then we'd have to have the audience come up one by one and look in the microscope. That's not going to work. So we went with the same idea as the marshmallow. Instead, when you want to talk about something really small, you go really big. So I have some people to help us with this and to help us really understand how hard it is for Allison to do it over and over and over again consistently. I have a set of twins to come help us. You know, we can't clone Allison, so we might as well... Actually, they're not identical, but... So we have our lovely little targets that they're going to try and color in. Remember, if you color outside the lines, you ruin the whole sensor. And there, eyelash. Oh, make sure you're holding from the back, you know. Allison can't hold all the way at the very tippy top. So, go for it. Let's see. Can they consistently color in and get it perfectly filled in? Oh, oh. I think Allison wishes she had fingers that, that were that tiny that could go in and fix her mistakes. Oh, I, I, I see a problem. I, th I think you need to find another technique to improve. So thank you very much, girls. That's awesome. Lovely artwork.
Thank you, Aaron. So you might now have a better understanding and perhaps an appreciation for why Anna and I were so motivated to find a different way that we can coat this enzyme layer. So we decided to look into a technique called electrochemistry. So with this technique, what we do is we take our device, so that's that cartoon on the very left. Again, we're looking at this as a cross-sectional view. So each of those silver rectangles are going to be the electrodes, and you can see the wires coming off of them. So say I want to designate the top electrode as my sensing site and the bottom electrode as my control site. So I want enzyme on the top, but none on the bottom. I can take my device and put it into a solution that contains a dissolved chemical called chitosan, which are represented by those pink blobs. So what happens is that if I apply a bias to just the top sensing site, the chitosan will aggregate and form a nice even layer over the sensing site, which is demonstrated by the larger pink blob. I can then remove my device and put it into a solution containing dissolved enzyme. So again, we see that on the very right. And the enzyme actually really likes sticking to the chitosan, so it'll only stick to that chitosan layer on the sensing site, but not to the control site. So I went ahead and I tried this technique, and we see this device right here. So you can see I have three different pairs of these oval electrodes. The black arrows designate the electrodes that I want as my sensing site, and about 50 micrometers away are the electrodes I wanted as my control site. So you can see these dark blobs over the sensing site. That's actually the chitosan enzyme layer that I was able to successfully deposit. And you can see this is a lot more even. It's not really interfering with the control site. So we then took this device and we wanted to characterize it. So I wanted to measure its sensitivity to glutamate. So I have this bar graph comparing the electrochemical method to the hand painting method. The y-axis shows the sensitivity of this device to glutamate. And what's even great about this technique is that it's about 13 times more sensitive than the hand-painted technique. So what that means is with a higher sensitivity, I can measure even smaller changes of glutamate in the brain. So that was great. We were really encouraged by this result. So we wanted to go ahead and look at the lifetime. So as a frame of reference, I'm going to go back to the electrical sensors that I talked about before. So after implantation, we've had neuroscientists that are able to use our devices for more than 160 days in the brain when we're just looking at electrical signal. So that's about five months. You're really able to get some understanding of how the brain changes in the long term. However, we're testing our chemical sensors. They only last about 14 days after implantation. So, you know, not great. So we wanted to see if we can form another hypothesis. So beyond looking at just the device itself, we now looked at the outside, so we wanted to look at the brain environment specifically. So in this particular case, I wanted to see, are there specific chemicals in the brain that are also causing the enzyme layer to degrade at a faster rate? So to do this, I took three different devices, I coated them with enzyme, and I put them into three different soaking solutions. So the vial on the left is a device soaking in phosphate-buffered saline, or PBS. So this is just a salt solution that's at the same pH as what your brain is, so it's considered our control test, so there's no chemicals mixed in. The vial in the middle shows PBS mixed with glutamate, and then the vial on the right shows PBS mixed with ascorbic acid. So I just narrowed it down. The brain is a really complex environment, but I just wanted to see, does glutamate or ascorbic acid play a role in affecting the enzyme lifetime? So I wanted to quantify how we're able to measure the lifetime. So in order to do this, I actually ran a calibration curve, so as similar to what Anna mentioned to you before. So you've seen a similar graph. 
The graph on the left is showing the actual data that we collect during our calibration curve measurements. So we're measuring the current on the y-axis as a function of time on the x-axis. And the graph on the right, we're starting to map the different changes of glutamate in my test beaker and how that current plays a role. So again, we put in one injection of glutamate, we see that stepwise increase in the current, and I can now map that to my calibration curve on the right. If I do a few more injections of this glutamate, you can see we're starting to build out the calibration curve on the right. We're getting more of the orange dots. And by the end of the experiment, I'm able to kind of see a slope. So I can kind of draw a line, um, a trend line, showing all of these dots and how they make a slope, right? So if I measure this slope, I now have a quantitative way to see how the enzyme layer is degrading over time. So for example, say I have a device, it's soaking in solution, and I test it after one week. So again, we're seeing the results from week zero to week one is now in the blue dots. We can already start to see, after only soaking for one week in solution, the slope is starting to get a little bit flatter, right? After soaking for two weeks, which is seen by the yellow uh, triangles right here, it's getting even more flat. Week three, the green triangles, more flat. And finally, by week four, these purple diamonds, essentially the slope is a completely flat horizontal line. So what that means is no matter how much glutamate I'm injecting into my test beaker, I'm not seeing a change in current. So my chemical sensor is no longer working. So I can go ahead and run this kind of calibration curve for each of my soak solutions and compare them. So what this bar graph shows is the y-axis is the percent drop in sensitivity. So I want to emphasize it's a drop. And what that means is the larger that the bar is, the worse the device performed. So the device soaking in PBS, we only see about a 15% drop in sensitivity. But the devices soaking in glutamate or ascorbic acid showed at least a 50% drop in sensitivity. So now we're able to conclude that the presence of some of these chemicals in the brain is also contributing to a lower enzyme lifetime. So looking forward to the future, what Anna and I hope to design is what you can think of as kind of a shield that could protect this enzyme layer as a way that we can increase the chemical sensor lifetime. So just to wrap up this talk, I demonstrated how we make these neural interfaces with microfabrication. I also talked about how we use these interfaces to measure both electrical and chemical signals. And you might be wondering, well, what's next? And the answer to that is we actually don't know. You know, in terms of 20 or 30 years in the future, this field is just so broad and there's so many unknown questions that we're hoping that through this talk, you might be inspired to think of some of the questions you might want to answer about the brain and help us fill in some of these question marks. And with that, we'd like to thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.